Welcome back to the Resurrection Church Podcast, Reading Every Day with Jesus, Week 27. Uh, Aaron Downs is back with us this week. Welcome back after a week off. How was, uh, how was that Rocky Mountain State? Hey, thanks for the welcome back. It's nice to be back, and it was nice to be there. Uh, my wife had a work trip, so we were there with the Evangelical Free Church of America, and we were on a piece of property owned by Nav Press, the Navigators, if you're familiar with that. And nope. it's adjacent to the Garden of the Gods in the Colorado Springs area. So Navigator Press, I think, I don't know the full history. I looked up some of it while I was there. It's really similar to Campus Crusades. If you're heard true. of it, yeah. It, it's like in that world. But it started with this guy who was in the Navy who spread the gospel a lot, started a business doing that pretty much. Um, they publish, they have a publishing house as well. So the message by Eugene Peterson was published through them. Um, yeah, it was a pretty sweet location. We stayed in a castle. We saw lots of animals. There was, there was a bear in the parking lot that I think we lured in because we had dinner one night and it was not great. Partly because I'm a little picky anyway. So we went out for a late night McDonald's run, which is not great for for other reasons. Um, and I we put the bag in the outside trash in the next morning as we were heading out for coffee. It's like 5 a.m. There was this massive bear kind of sauntering away from the upturned garbage can with our McDonald's wrappers strewn everywhere. So it was eventful, that, you know, but it was a good time. I also talked to my Gen Z cousin who explained to me everything that is wrong about millennials in a very kind way, in a helpful way. You know, she was concerned about me. So so what are the top five things wrong with us? Uh, the phrases that we use, the way that we dress, the things that we care about, um, the way we use social media, and then well, probably the way that we're not self-aware about the four other things. But like how? You could say those five things about any generation. Well... I need to keep learning. Oh, okay. But she she did a great job talking things through. I hope I didn't make it sound like she was being mean or something. I asked her what like what the Gen Zer would think about me as a millennial. So it was like revealing and helpful, but also really sad. <laughs> Our Bible reading begins in First Kings thirteen, and we're introduced to kings really for the rest of Second Kings, and we kind of get introduced to a lot of really bad kings, we might say. But by bad, what do we mean? Evil, wicked. How are they evil and wicked? Covenant breakers. Yeah. They, uh, you know, they leave the high places there. Some of them uh, sacrifice their own children, very frowned upon. Matthew, what's a high place? No clue, but uh, it was always, <laughs> it was always like, he did well, but he did not tear down the high places. I assume that's where they offered things to false gods. That's my guess. Or I think sometimes they would use it because they didn't have the temple, right? Like I think it was pre-Solomon. I think the high places they were like could, could have been, yeah, substitute. Like, like satellite temples. Of, yeah, they used high places, and that's but definitely was also used for the pagan gods. Pagan worship. 
Or maybe it was just where they kept their snacks so they didn't want to overeat. I'm like a million percent sure that I read that somewhere. I would not disagree with that at all. What's interesting... Are you sure? You don't want to disagree with that? I I wouldn't have anything to say. I think what's interesting in our reading is that we encounter various prophets who we've seen in other books of the Bible as well. And I, I think it's helpful for us to pause and reflect on that because especially when we get to books written by those prophets later, we might forget when they actually lived because we're reading their book or their prophecy on the other side of the Esther, Job, Psalm, Proverbs divide. So we have people like Isaiah and Jonah who show up in here who we'll encounter later in our Bible reading plan. But we also encounter a prophet who appears earlier in our Bible reading, and that prophet is Elisha. Matthew, why don't you walk us through the end of Elisha's ministry and really the end of his life? Something about shooting an arrow, and then the guy hit the arrow, but he didn't hit it enough times. And I remember for some reason that was bad. Why was that bad? And why would he know, how would he know how many times to hit the ground? I don't know. It wasn't like, hit the ground. I didn't say stop, keep hitting it. Because you only did it three times instead of five, you're only going to conquer this amount of the rebellion or the people or whatever. But like, how do you know? How do you know? It's kind of the opposite of Moses's rock situation where he hits it more than he's supposed to. Now, could it be just not documented, but it's like you only hit it three times. That's not good enough. Was that just like a reflection of his heart? Was he actually getting judged for having like an unbelieving heart or something like that? Or was it literally like if you would have just hit it more, regardless of anything else, things would have gone better? I'd be interested in knowing what your study Bible notes say on this. It it is interesting that Elisha says, if you struck the ground five or six times, you know, it's not like there was a precise number. Well, what would seven or eight have done then? It's like, is that too much? It's like, whoa, buddy, back it up. Yeah, it's kind of like on that episode of Parks and Rec where they're doing the um, inter-global community initiative and the guy's like, you know, if you do this, you go to jail. If you do that, you get, you know, so if you if you strike the ground only a few times, jail. If you strike <laughs> it too many times, believe it or not, jail. It's kind of, that's kind of what this makes me think of. Like there's, there's a no win situation here. So maybe it was just, he was being judged for having a poor heart. I don't know. Or maybe not. Maybe he was a great guy and he was really caught off guard by this. I don't know. What, what does the ESV study Bible help us out with? Elisha, who knows of other chariots and horsemen of Israel who are not of flesh and blood, is able to promise the king a series of victories. The victories would have been greater number had the king, in response to prophetic commands, been more enthusiastically obedient. You should have struck five or six times to the words of the prophet. So So he was too blasé about it. Huh. Yeah, I guess we're not in the room watching it. You know, maybe this guy's like, I already shot an arrow out the window for you. And he kind of apathetically... Yeah. Maybe he had a bad attitude when he was hitting the ground. He didn't... He was just like, whatever, tap, tap, tap. Yeah. Who knows? Mm. To be a fly on the wall. It's kind of hard to apply something like that directly to nope. your no, life. No. you easy. Um, here's how you, you can do it. Here's, here's how you apply it. Not correctly, maybe. Yeah. You need to obey with energy. Vigor. I, I was going to say that word. That was going to be like my third word. Zeal. Dang it. 
I was going to say energy. Maybe vigor was my second word. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just glad that we're tracking in the same direction. Yeah. Energy, vigor, and faithfulness. Dude. Sounds like a good description. Three point sermon. It's like a good description of a cologne or something. Or deodorant. Oh, I think you said a clone. Clone? Yeah, clone. Like a <laughs> Where's he going with this? You ever seen Star Wars? Those guys fought with energy, vigor, and faithfulness. Yes. Those clone armies. Um, if this scene took place in a Star Wars episode and there was a Jedi telling a ruler that he would win a battle, what would he have him shoot out the window? Um, a laser gun. I I haven't actually seen Star Wars in a really long time. But then if you hit the ground with a lightsaber, you'd just be like cutting through stuff. Blaster. Well, when we do our Star Wars edition of the Bible. What? Just kidding. Um, Elisha died. Yeah. And then he was buried, as people often are after death. And then another guy died, and he was buried. But he was buried in a hasty way. Well, they just chucked him in there. Was yeah, why did they throw this guy into a tomb? They were in a bad part of town. There was some marauders maraudering, and they were just trying to get out of there. They didn't want to you know, be the next one to be tossed in a tomb. So they just chucked the guy on Elisha. They didn't know it. They didn't realize it. And the dude came to life. He's back. And I wish it said more, but it's just like, you're back. Yeah, no more explanation, right? Isn't that strange? Yeah. So what do you make of it? Why why do you think God allowed that to happen, caused that to happen? I don't know. That is interesting. I don't know what that means. I don't know what anyone else is saying about this because we're reading so much. There's no time to look this stuff up. But I wonder if... Um, in part, the fact that this happened and is recorded is just intending to communicate that Elisha's prophetic ministry, like what he said in the critique he had against the evil of Israel and their kings, was not false, and that there's still power to that critique, and that God is still active, even though it looks like everything else is going to pot. So in the next section, even though there's oppression throughout the land, God was gracious to them, had compassion on them, turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was not willing to destroy them. Even now, he has not banished them from his presence. I wonder if if this guy getting life by coming in contact with the mouthpiece of God, we might say, the, the one through whom God spoke, is a little bit of a parable of if you return to the word of the Lord— you'll you'll find life. You know, there's compassion there. I don't know if that's what this is indicating, what, if that's what was being communicated, but that's my guess. The ESV study Bible notes say something similar. You know, they say that God's soon going to throw the nation into exile and they should stay in close contact with God's prophets so they can not experience that. Yeah, well, that makes sense. If you want life, like covenant blessing, where do you go? To the prophets. So briefly after this man revives from the dead with no further comment, 
we hear a brief description of God's mercy on Israel. But as we keep going further into the story, it seems like no one's recognizing or responding to God's mercy and compassion. So as we look through these kings, I don't want to belabor belabor the point by just repeating everything that's bad. But I definitely felt like there is nothing good going on here. This is this is like about as bad as the days of the judges. Mm-hmm. And what do you make of that? You know, I've I've got a suggestion, but what did you guys feel that way? Did you feel like, man, these kings are as bad as all the judges and the people are all as bad? Kind of everybody did what is right in his own eyes sort of thing. Yeah, maybe a little bit. I was mostly just was thinking about what you said before about how you know everybody was worse than the their their predecessor. So I think I think we're definitely seeing that. So we see Jonah pop up in chapter 14. Aaron, do you have like one single comment you could make about Jonah? I'll try to restrict it to just this one singular comment. All right, please do. Um, in 14, 25 through 27, we encounter Jonah. And of course, we all know Jonah from the book named after him. But in this case, I think it's significant that through Jonah, God speaks, and it's a message of redemption, deliverance. It's a message of help. So Jonah is a prophet of God who's almost always giving a message of help, and here it happens, right? So God promises deliverance, and he makes good on that promise. So then when we read the book of Jonah and his prophecy to Nineveh, Jonah knows that God is a God of compassion. How does he know that? Because he's experienced it right here. Yeah, so if you thought Jonah was just a one-hit wonder, he pops up here. He's doing good work all over the place, not just Nineveh. Yeah, exactly. And um, it's you know we could we could elaborate more and say that Jonah was willing to give a message of hope and salvation to his people, and he was not willing to do that for not his people. I do think that when we talked to Josh about the Jonah series that he preached through, he did say that. Part of the reason for Jonah not wanting to preach to them was that he was they were not his people. So that that does sound that sounds right to me. Yeah, I think that's right, especially if you're looking at a time in Israel's history where they're being conquered by other people. You know, they're they're at a place where there are raiders who are in your land. So you're trying to conduct a funeral. And instead of having a respectful burial, you're chucking a body into someone else's tomb. Like this is a time of Israel's history where outsiders are dangerous. So if you're alive there and God tells you, hey, things are going to pot in your nation, but I'm going to plan to save some other people, go talk to them. Like there, you can see why someone would resist that summons. Right. So I would not say it's like, ethnic-based discrimination or something. I would say it's more like social, political-based problems. So maybe a parallel would be if God told someone in Ukraine, go to Russia and tell those people, come to faith. AJ, in chapter 17, after hearing about all of these wicked kings, the narrator gives us a brief description of why Israel fell. Why is it that Israel was dispossessed from the land? 
they were dispossessed from the land because they were idolatrous. Well, 1717, <laughs> they burned their sons and daughters as offerings and used divination and omens. All bad. Yeah, I think in, in this chapter and really throughout, we start getting the picture that Israel is behaving in the same way that the nations were behaving before God brought Israel in to drive those nations out. So they drove out these wicked nations, but they're living in the same exact way. And from the very beginning, God told them, I'm not choosing you because of anything about you, but because I'm going to make my name great in this land because I love you and I'm entering into covenant relationship with you. Well, as that progresses, they act just like the people who God rejected. So it should be no surprise to them that God's going to reject them as well. And that's exactly what happened. AJ, there's a weird section at the end of chapter 17 where there are foreign refugees in the land of Israel. What's going on in that passage? I don't know. It's curious to me. The Lord sent lions to these people who were not fearing him and started killing the people. And then the people turned back to fear God. But it wasn't even Jews, right? Like, that's that's what I was curious about, like, why God cared about this specific area. Yeah, it's almost like God has put his mark on this land and anyone who's going to be in this place, you know, where the temple is, where his presence is dwelling, anyone who's going to be in this land needs to fear the Lord and only him. So these foreigners come in. It seems like some lions kill off some of them. So then they ask the king of Assyria to send one of Israel's priests back to to teach them the way so they could be there safely because they they realize that they don't know the requirements of the God of the land. So they get trained, but even they fail to live wholeheartedly for God. They do fear him, but they worship other gods, and um, they live in danger the whole time they're there. I think it makes it pretty clear that it has nothing to do, God's judgment has nothing to do with who the people are in terms of their identities, everything to do with their relationship to the Lord. AJ, sorry, Matthew, sometimes I get you guys confused. We look so similar now that I have a beard. And it is coming in thick. No, it's not. That's why I'm just letting it grow because it doesn't come in thick. Yep. That's what I'm doing. Yep, I like it. Now in chapter 20, I grew up hearing that God moved the sun back for Hezekiah. So then like we got 10 extra hours in a day and that's probably why we have daylight savings time. But it seemed to me that this wasn't really the sun moving. It's God moving a shadow. Yeah, that's that's the way I took it this time. I can't remember if I have ever, I bet I have heard or have been taught that before. I think I've always heard it as God moved the sun back. Because it has to, there has to be some yeah. reason. And I know there's a different account that actually talks about the sun standing still or the day lengthening, something like that. But here, I'm pretty sure I had heard, you know, the sun was moved backwards. And I think there were like pre-modern scientists trying to figure out calendars and things and saying, we've, we've found out, you know, this explains why there's a discrepancy in our time. I don't, I don't know, like the amount of hours in a year. One thing I found interesting in chapter 22 is 
uh, well, I don't know where it's somewhere in 22, but they basically like find what find the law that Moses had written that God gave him. It's like they had it lost in their attic for generations and then somebody kind of stumbled upon it and they're like, Oh my gosh, we're supposed to be doing this stuff. And then they start doing it for a little bit, you know, chapter 22. Remember that? That's what happened. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, they they are not living according to the word of the Lord, and they find it in the temple, and it brings about a massive reform in Israel. Yeah. So, I mean, it makes sense why they were evil for so long. They just, like, weren't, like, they probably didn't even really know about it because they didn't care. Well... Or do you think they knew about it? It could be. I I would say probably for some of those generations. These are a lot of kings that we've talked about, right? And in different places. So... Obviously, there might be some in the northern kingdom, right? Jerusalem, where's Jerusalem? Is that in the southern kingdom or the northern kingdom? Southern. Let's look at our Bible maps. Okay, so Judah, where's Jerusalem? And I see Shechem and Tirzah. Oh, it is in Judah. There we go. So the temple obviously is in Judah, Southern kingdom. So there are kings of the northern kingdom who aren't around the temple, right? Yeah. I don't know. But yeah, you know, there are people who know what God wants from them and they disobey it pretty clearly because God's prophets have spoken to them. But here, of course, it's discovered this guy's dad never read it or at least never read it to him. And uh, he apparently was receptive. Yeah. I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Like, oh my gosh, maybe we should read it. (laughs) I mean, that's a good response though, right? Like if you come across the covenant document that God gave you, you should read it and respond appropriately. He was moved positively. So did he reign uh, and do what is right in the eyes of the Lord for the 10 years before he found? I get the feeling that this thing was buried in the temple, like nobody had read it for... Yeah, who knows? Maybe it's like he has a cursory knowledge of what righteousness is and is pursuing that. And as he's equipping people to serve in the temple again, they discover it. It seems like that's what happens. One thing I have a question about moving right along to chapter 23. Manasseh is mentioned and he's real bad and evil. Is that the same Manasseh referenced at the end of Chronicles who does repent? Because in here, when he's referenced, it's just like he's all bad and he's terrible and that's it. Like, you know, kind of a common name for back then. Maybe there was more than one of them, but. We could go to Second Chron. You said Second Chronicles? It's either First or Second Chronicles, like 30, chapter 30. We can do some quick sleuthing because we know that Hezekiah is the father. Oh, Second Chronicles 33. Does it give his yeah, because that's before, well, man, it's kind of like things are switched around here. Where's Manasseh in 2 Kings? Verse. Oh, 21, Manasseh, and then Josiah. 33, there's Manasseh, and then Josiah. So I'd say we're, we could be assured that they're the same guy. Oh. What did you say? You said one guy repented? Well, the the account in Second Chronicles 33, Manasseh repents, because his prayer is so moving and 
I didn't realize that that prayer apparently is written down in the, what's that thing, Apocrypha? Oh, yeah, could I, be. Yeah, because when I, when I read that of like a couple years ago in Second Chronicles, I'm like, dang it, where's his prayer that moved God so much? I want to know what he prayed. And then it's actually written down. You can read it. But he repents because he gets captured and he's in chains because a foreign land captures him because he's like super evil. Yeah, so yeah. Kings, Second Kings does not record his repentance, but Second Chronicles does. And I think that's fitting with the different angles that Kings and Chronicles take. So for example, in the Kings, you hear David's sin mentioned. You never hear it mentioned in Chronicles. So it's almost like one is giving the worst take possible, and then the other is giving a better take uh, on what happened or just giving you a fuller picture. The highlights. Yeah, and maybe it has something to do with what these texts are doing. You know, I think Chronicles um, fits better into the the other writings in the Hebrew Bible where Kings fits better into the prophetic literature. So you have the law, the Pentateuch, and then the prophets, which includes second Kings and then the writings, which has Chronicles. So second Kings is in the prophetic tradition where it's providing a harsh critique about the failures of Israel, where Chronicles is maybe recording a more hopeful history of Israel pointing forward to the the next stage. So, you know, I think Chronicles in the Hebrew Bible is the last book in the Bible. So maybe that arrangement helps us understand what the authors are doing and why some things are left out and why other things are included. Yeah, I was talking with my students about this last week, maybe, but first and second Kings do take a harsh, critical look at Israel and you have prophets included in there who are giving harsh, critical words. So it makes a lot of sense. I think the highlight was Jehu cleaning house. Well, and Josiah, of course, with his covenant reforms, the Passover is celebrated in the biggest way ever in Israel's history. I mean, that's pretty remarkable, right? Jehu's out there just snapping necks and cashing checks. Yeah. <laughs> And the book ends in a tough way with the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile. So I think one of the tough things is that we are not moving, you know, in one way we'd want to save reading First and Second Chronicles till the end of the Old Testament. So that way we could get right into Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Daniel, these exile, post-exile stories to keep kind of the flow going. But when we get to Chronicles next week, it's like we restart the history of Israel all over again. And um, we kind of get turned around in everything that's happening. You know what I mean? Yeah, we should really have an expert on the podcast that could that we could talk to about arrangement. Yeah, maybe there's a guy you could get us connected with. I'll look into it. Sweet. No promises? So as you guys reflect on Second Kings... What, what are you feeling in terms of Israel's history, but then also in the way that we ought to respond to this book as a whole? I don't know. Some of the stuff we had, we've already talked about, but an overall negative feeling, you know, things are going bad. They've walked away from God and, and are, you know, God's keeping what he said would happen when that 
when they do that. What are your overall reflections on the book and how should we respond to it? Well, the majority of the book is them kind of screwing up, just not following God, sinning, doing their own thing. But I guess, you know, it stands out if and when they ever do repent or there's a good king scattered in here and there, um, you know, God's faithful to to listen or to, you know, accept them or relent or something in some form or fashion when they actually do repent. Doesn't happen a whole lot in Second Kings, but, um, yeah, I, I guess that's just kind of what stuck out to me because God was getting so... <laughs> so frustrated with them and so mad at them and they were getting punished a lot but then if they repented then he'd be like all right i'll back off i'll stop crushing you for being evil since you're stopping it i have just a couple of observations the first observation is that god over and over again gives warnings he's compassionate he's slow to anger and people don't respond to that so it reminds me of what paul says in romans i think it's four maybe it's five or actually, it's probably Romans 2, 15, or something like that. I don't know. Somewhere in Romans, Paul says um, that we shouldn't presume upon the kindness of God because it's meant to lead us to repentance. And it seems like there are occasions in First and Second Kings where people are presuming upon God's kindness, and because he doesn't immediately bring harsh judgment, they continue on in their evil ways instead of recognizing that God's kindness was intended to lead them to repentance. I think that's probably something that we should reflect on in our own lives when we don't experience hardship or God's judgment immediately for our sin. That kindness and lack of judgment doesn't mean that our sin isn't serious or needing of repentance, but it's really an opportunity for us to repent. Second, I'd want to point out that During the times of the judges, there's this line that everyone did what was right in their eyes and there was no king in the land. Well, in 2 Kings, we learned that just having any old king is not good enough to bring about God's kingdom righteousness anywhere. And, you know, for the history of Israel, that's important because the way of the kings leads to exile because the way of their kings is not the way of the law. It's not the way of God. I think in response, we could just say that any political party that we put our hope in, or any ruler or any leader, Christian or otherwise, if if that person is not leading us in the way of the Lord, if that political party is opposed to God's way on this earth, then we're going to run into all sorts of chaos and trouble. So we shouldn't overly invest hope in leaders or political systems or parties or anything like that. Instead, we should put our hope in in the Lord and walk in his way. As we turn our attention to Acts 7 through 10, there are probably several angles that we could go about talking about these texts, but I really want to encourage our listeners in two ways. First, I would want to encourage you to pay careful attention, not just to these chapters, but to the whole book of Acts and to take your cues about what the gospel is and what communicating the gospel entails from the apostles in the book of Acts. So if you're thinking about the Great Commission at the end of Matthew, where Jesus is sending the apostles out to preach the gospels to all nations, to make disciples, we get a front row seat of what that looks like in Acts. 
So when you're thinking about the content of the gospel that you share with people or your own understanding of the gospel, I would say pay very close attention to the sermons of Peter. Here, the sermon of Stephen, and we get into another one of Peter's sermons, and ask yourself if the way that you would articulate the gospel has anything in common with the way they're articulating the gospel. And if not, that might be a challenge to you to firm up what your articulation of the gospel would be. Maybe your way of talking about the gospel is a little bit too narrow and too thin, or the emphasis is misplaced. Well, I would want to look at the sermons in the book of Acts as a corrective to the way we talk about the gospel. The second thing that I'd want to point out to our listeners is that we are about to hit a break in the book where it's not so much a break, it's a, it's a progression, but as the gospel moves from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria, going out now to the uttermost parts of the earth, where the Gentiles, non-Jews, receive the gospel and receive the Holy Spirit. So I think one question that comes up often is, how come people get the Spirit at different times and in different ways? And why is the gospel you know, hitting some places and not others until a later time? Well, if you think again about that Great Commission, that sending first Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then the uttermost parts of the earth, it's like Jerusalem is the center of God's kingdom being renewed on earth. And as there's kingdom renewal in conformity with these new covenant promises, as that spreads out across the globe, the Spirit of God goes with it, right? So people receive the Spirit following in that same pattern. So we wouldn't want to read Acts and try to come up with any weird theologies of you get the Holy Spirit if you get hands laid on you in a particular way, or if you're baptized in a particular way, or if you start doing particular things. This is a unique scene of the kingdom being established in its already form before Christ's return as it spreads across the world. Thank you for joining us this week. Are you guys not going to say anything? I was confused. There was like food given to Peter three times or something, and then he ignored it. I was confused by that. That's an important passage. This is a hugely important passage. Well, explain it. I don't know. I didn't know what was going on. AJ, why don't you talk us through Peter's vision of the clean and the unclean meat and the multiple levels of uh, truth that are communicated through that vision. Yeah, so Peter is doing what he's been doing, ministering to to his people, and God is giving him a vision. And, you know, it's a strange one, but seems to tell Peter that the gospel can now go to, to Gentiles, and he's not going to distinguish between his people being <clears throat> Jews or not Jews. And Along with that, the Jews can no longer follow the dietary restrictions that they had before. And then Cornelius is a pretty cool dude. You know, he he and his family were seeking after God and trying to follow him in the way that they could. And God tells him to go find Peter and to, to bring him in. I assume that they slaughtered a pig and had pork chops and bacon and stuff. I don't know. Oh, man, I had pork chops for lunch. Yeah, I think you're on the right track, right? Because Peter is a Jew. He's following the commands of the Torah, which means you don't eat certain kinds of food. And if you don't eat this 
kind of food, you know, these unclean foods, you're probably not eating with the people who do eat those kinds of foods. I think even now in the way that some people who we know have different dietary restrictions, there's always a little bit of extra effort that's needed if you're going to dine together, you know, unless you're going out to eat somewhere and then you just have to choose a restaurant that can accommodate all of those things. But if you're having a meal together, uh, for example, if I was going to eat with you guys, you guys each have your unique things that you you bring to the table or don't bring to the table, as the case may be. And we have to figure that out if we're going to eat together. Well, if there's really strict food laws that you're following, you're probably not going to eat with people who, or fellowship or have relationships with people who aren't following those laws. Well, God is telling Peter, hey, in this new covenant kingdom restoration, all people are going to be welcomed fully into this. They're going to be my people. I'll be their God. And these dietary restrictions are no longer enforced. Now you're going to integrate with Gentiles. You won't separate from them, but you'll integrate based on the shared promise of the gospel of the kingdom that's affirmed through the giving of the Holy Spirit. So that's exactly what happens. Peter encounters a Gentile man, and then these Gentiles come to faith and receive the Holy Spirit as well. So Peter says, hey, let's baptize them. Let's mark them off as followers of Jesus, part of God's kingdom, um, because God's not holding himself back from them. So why should we hold back acceptance from them as well? Does that make sense, or does that answer some of the questions you had as you were reading that? Yeah. I thought it was interesting when, when Stephen was arrested and they brought some false accusations to him and they ask him, you know, answer answer these, like, these accusations. Is this true? And he's like, you know what? Instead of answering that, which is probably going to be bad for me, I'm going to give you a history lesson and share the gospel with you. That's multiple chapters. Yeah. So I think I agree with you for the most part. But I think he was also doing something that everyone in that room knew he was doing. It, I think it comes across a little more subtly to us than it did for anyone in the room. Uh, but in this sermon, you know, they're accusing him of essentially being a blasphemer, right? So they're saying, you're, you're blaspheming, you're, you're um, essentially the, a false witness, right? Even though they said a false witnesses to say this. And he gives them a sermon that essentially says just about every person who has claimed to be a follower of God or to be one of God's people rejects the very prophets that God sends among them, just like you're doing to me, just like you did to Jesus. So where they're accusing him of being a, a false prophet, a blasphemer, you know, get out of here. He's saying, you're doing what your fathers have done. You're just as guilty as they are. So I think it's a little bit subtle, but he's he's treading on thin ice and he knows it. And then the proof of that is they all get super angry at him and say we're gonna kill we're gonna kill you because you're saying that we're as bad as all these other people. Do you have a do you have time to talk about suffering in these chapters? I I asked you that before. I know we talked to Josh last week about it a little bit because he's teaching a class on suffering. I know that it seems like it's a pretty big theme for this book, and if it's something you kind of have to grasp onto. Yeah, I I can just riff a little bit on it, but I'd really just want to draw our attention in one direction, and that is for the expansion of God's kingdom, for the establishment of God's kingdom, there will always be suffering. And it's through suffering that God's kingdom comes to fruition in this world. So I think most of us, 
are always inclined to say, if I'm going to have my way, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get it in place, right? So I'm going to accomplish what I want, even if I have to crush people on my way. If people are resisting me, I'm going to treat them like an obstacle. I'm going to do what it takes. I'm going to fight fire with fire. And I think that's sometimes how Christians operate in our world, right? Like, oh, the government is hard on Christians, maybe, or there are unbelievers who are jerks, so we can be jerks back to them. But that's not the way that Stephen demonstrates here. It's not the way that Jesus demonstrated, and it's not the way that God's accomplished his will throughout history in the history that Stephen relays. He relays over and over again that God's will comes to pass through an ironic victory through the suffering of God's people, which brings about eventual victory. And I think that's a call that we have is to be people who demonstrate God's kingdom through our loathliness, through our suffering, through our humility, not through shows of force, not through trying to be the strong people, but through being the people who imitate Jesus. What do you think about that? I was just thinking about what you said the way you started the section on Acts about here's a couple things to pay attention to. And I, that was one thing that I was thinking is an important thing to kind of grasp on because it seems like it's a it's a big theme mm-hmm. in the book. Yeah, and I think, you know, Acts starts us out with this question from the apostles to Jesus when they're talking to him and they say, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? And he essentially says, you know, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What he's describing there is in God's timing, the kingdom will spread across the entire globe. And the way that it's going to happen is through faithful witness. That is sometimes a fateful witness in, in the death of his witnesses, right? They become martyrs. They suffer. But the spread of God's kingdom really comes through suffering. And it's like all of the parables that Jesus taught. It happens slow. You know, it starts out small, but then it becomes bigger than you could ever imagine. Thank you for joining us this week, week 27 of the Resurrection Church podcast. For more information about all things Resurrection Church, visit ResurrectionMN.org. Or call up AJ. Or call AJ.